I know for many of you the uh, medley of Sunday school songs brought back back some good memories, but I couldn't help but think as I was uh, singing those and remembering and wondering what my children were thinking because I used to barge into their rooms before school to wake them up singing some of those songs. So, you know, it probably brought different memories back for them, but kind of that's the way it is sometimes. You know, the story is told of the day that uh, the farmer who had been in an accident uh, realized that his injuries were serious enough to take the trucking company responsible for the accident to court. It says in court, the trunk, uh, trucking company's lawyer was questioning this farmer, and he said, didn't you say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine, I've never felt better in my life? And the farmer responded, well, let me tell you what happened. I just unloaded my favorite mule, Bessie, into the, and he, it was interrupted by the attorney. He said, I didn't ask for those details, sir, just to answer the question. Did you not say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine, I have never, and he interrupted him again. The farmer said, well, I just got Bessie into the trailer. I was driving down the road, and again, the lawyer was upset. He interrupted him and said, judge, I'm going to ask you to establish the fact at the scene of the accident, I'm going to ask you to have him refrain from answering other than just my questions. This man told the highway patrolman according to this report I've got in front of me that at the scene of the accident he was fine he had never felt better in all of his life now here he is several weeks later and he's trying to tell us something different just please have him simply answer the question but by this time the judge was curious what he was going to say and he said no I think I'm going to allow him to go ahead and answer and the farmer said thank you judge I appreciate that and he thanked him and he went on he said well as I was saying I just loaded Bessie into the trailer I was driving down the highway when this huge semi truck and trailer ran the stop sign smacked right into the middle of my truck flipped us over onto the right side I was thrown into one ditch Bessie my mule was thrown into the other I was hurting really bad and I didn't want to move however I could hear Bessie she was moaning over in the other ditch I knew she was in terrible shape by the groans and shortly after that by that time the highway patrolman came onto the scene he could hear Betsy moaning and groaning he went over to her he looked at her so what bad shape that she was in pulled out his revolver and shot her right between the eyes and killed her and then he walked over to me with his gun in his hand and he said how are you feeling (laughs) you know every time I, I think of that story I think about how many times during the course of a week or day that I'm asked how are you feeling and I'm not sure exactly how it is to answer that at times you know But uh, today in our ongoing study of uh, Dr. Luke's account of the life of Jesus, we come to a passage uh, that I've entitled, God's Cure for Fainting. God's Cure for Fainting. How are you feeling? You know, what kind of week did you have this week? And uh, what kind of situations did go, I'm just fine, sir, thanks for asking. But, you know, all of us at some point or another wrestle with the, the, uh, the trauma of living in this world. And in Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 1, we find God gives us a cure for fainting. It says, now he was telling them, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was telling them, and them as his disciples, a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I don't, respect, or don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect 
who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know, in order to better understand this passage, we must recall from our last, our previous message, the particular emphasis on Jesus' warning about difficult days in the present as God's people await either for Him to call us home or Him to return to us and establish His kingdom, His ultimate earthly kingdom. And uh, from Luke 17, if you recall, you know, we learned that the kingdom of God is best defined as God's people, you know, living in God's place under God's authority or under God's rule. And in the midst of that, we are to do this, who, we who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, God's people, children of God by those who believe in His name, living in God's place, which ultimately everything is God's place, for He created the universe and He's Lord of all, and living you know, under God's rule in this place, in this time, in the present, in the midst of a, a, a generation that's, in re, frankly, in rebellion against God. And so when you really stop and think about it, we as God's people who want to live according to God's rule in our life in this place and time, we are going to be continually up against those people around us who have no interest in living according to God's rule. They have no interest in being under God's authority. They are not God's people because they've never trusted in Christ. They're not adopted into the family of God. And so as a result, we who come in contact continually with people of this world are going to be uh, in conflict. There is a relentless tension that exists, and I, I, you know, I'm sure that you see it, I see it every day. There is a relentless tension that exists between God's people doing what is right according to God and the world we live in that tries to encourage us to do that which is wrong before God. That's why the Bible says so often, and one example is don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, the reality of it is, and we talk to our children at times, and yet at the same time as adults, we struggle with the same thing, and that is called peer pressure. We struggle with wanting to be accepted by people rather than ultimately to be pleasing to God. And it, and it, and it affects us as far as the decisions that we make. Do we want to live lives pleasing to God, or are we more concerned about living lives that are more acceptable to people around us? And that tension exists on a regular basis. I experience it, and I deal with people on a regular basis who experience it. I deal with adults who are more concerned about being accepted by people, and yet they try to teach their children not to give in to peer pressure. And that's why the Apostle Paul says to all God's people, you know what, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you know, to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, you know what? Don't give in. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired. And yet at the same time, you'll see as we wait for that day that either God calls us home or that Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. If you'll turn with me to the book of Titus, you got the book, the five T's, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and then Titus to, to, uh, to bring that to the conclusion, those five sections of books that begin with T in the New Testament. But in Titus chapter 2, I thought about that as I, as I considered this passage, for the grace of God has appeared. Speaking of Jesus himself, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. He has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us, notice, to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, 
And on the other hand, to live sensibly, which is right before God, righteously, godly in this present age. So he's saying that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm instructing you to deny yourself those fleshly pleasures, those things that are pleasing to yourself and maybe those around you. Deny that. Pick up your cross daily, denying yourself and come and follow me. Deny yourself these worldly desires, you know, and to live sensibly. Sensibly means to, to live right when it comes to the sense that God has given us. There's a way that seems right to men, but its end is destruction. There is a way that is right before God. And he's saying as God's people who have the spirit of God living within us and the word of God to instruct us, a lamp under our feet and under our path. He's saying, you know what? You can live sensibly before God, making right choices. He says, but you're to live righteously as opposed to wrongly and godly as opposed to ungodly now in this present age while you wait for the Lord to call you home or him to come in return and establish his kingdom. And in the meantime, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. As we live lives, you say, well, Chuck, why should I do that? So because, you know why? Because you and I are accountable ultimately to God. Why should I choose to do what is right? Why can't I just do what it's wrong, what's wrong and I'll deal with the consequence later? He says, because in light of the choices we have to make, never forget that Jesus is coming again. Never forget that today could be that day. Never forget that we're going to give ultimately our accountabilities before God. I talk with grown men who are more concerned about pleasing teammates that they may only see for one season than they are about pleasing God. Who ultimately they answer to and years go by. And, you know, we see it all the time. You're in high school and you're worried about, you know, pleasing your classmates. And all I've got to say to you is this. You know what? 30 years out of high school, I don't have any contact with anybody I went to high school with. But I was so concerned about living to please. We talk to adults and you go to college and you're in a sorority or fraternity and you're so concerned about pleasing them. And yet, if you stop and think about it, years after college, how many of you actually have any friendships that have any ties to those days? And we begin to learn what God wants us to understand. You know what? Ultimately, we're accountable before God. Stop sucking up the people and worry about what they think of you and start doing what's right before God. And what keeps it in line is that, you know what? We're to be looking daily, always, for the, the blessed appearance, the great hope of every believer is that Jesus will return and make everything that is wrong right. In the appearance and the glory of our, notice this, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I talk to people on a regular basis who claim Jesus isn't God. And they use the Bible to try to help me to understand that. And I just go to passages like this and go, okay, let's see. For the grace of God has appeared. Who has appeared? Jesus has appeared and the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten father, full of grace and full of truth. Okay, good. Now, looking for the blessing, the appearance of the glory of our great God, who's to return. Oh, God's going to return. But wait, he's also our savior, Christ Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Okay. Who gave himself for us? Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, God's people in God's place under God's rule, zealous for good things, not begrudgingly. So many of us act like, you know, God wants us to do things that we begrudgingly do. Oh, man, I can't lie anymore. Oh, I can't cheat anymore. Oh, I can't steal anymore. Man, this is really cramping my style. 
And yet at the same time, as we've been born again and the Spirit of God lives within us, it's like, you know what? I don't know about you, but if I lie, I'm convicted about it. I'm troubled by it. It's more troubling to do what's wrong before God than to do what's right before God. It's a litmus test of whether we've truly come to faith in Christ. If you can still lie, cheat, steal, get drunk, and party with your friends and do all those things, and you have no conviction about it, let me just tell you something. You're not one of God's kids. You're just not. Because the Spirit of God says, you know what? You better examine yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith. You can claim to be whatever you want. You can show up every week in church. You can say you pray to prayer. But you know what? The bottom line is you, you and God. This is about you and God. And, and people are born again by the will of God, not by human effort. We're born again by repenting of sin and turning from sin and turning to God and saying, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. And the best of my understanding, I want to receive that gift of forgiveness and salvation in him and receive him as my savior. And the Bible says that God, who knows our hearts at that moment in time, we're born again by God's doing, not by our own efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith. And so he goes on to say that, you know what, in this conflict, this, con, this contrast that takes place, going back to chapter 17 again of, of Luke's gospel, if you remember, he said there's a day that's coming, speaking of us as believers and to the, specifically the disciples at the time, he's saying there's a day that's going to come in your life where you are going to long for seeing Jesus again. You're going to be so troubled and conflicted by this world. You're going to experience so much persecution for His name's sake that you are going to long for the day that Jesus calls you home or comes again to establish His kingdom. And I say this, you and I have got to be living today longing for His return because we are so troubled and persecuted by living a life that's pleasing to God that we live in a world of constant tension and friction. If your life is comfortable then you are not doing what God has called you to do. It is absolutely impossible not to be in the midst of persecution and conflict if you are choosing to do what is right before God. Because this world's in rebellion against God. He's saying there's a day that's coming. You're going to long for it. And I hope you long for it today like I do. And on the other side, he said, you know what? The rest of the world's going to be eating, drinking, just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot. They're going to be buying and selling. They're going to be doing their thing. They're not going to be giving any thought to spiritual things. They're not even going to be thinking about their ultimate accountability to God. Are you kidding me? You know what? I don't have time to think about any of that. You know, someday maybe, but not right now. I'm having too much fun doing what I want to do when I want to do it. But I know when nobody else is around, they know that I'm miserable. You know, you know, somebody knows. I know I'm miserable, but I like to pretend that I'm not. And the reason I, you know, I try to talk you into doing things that I'm doing is because I need company. Misery loves company. And so I, you know, I don't want to do these things by myself. I want to do it with other people so I can mistakenly believe that what I'm doing is okay because if we can talk enough people into doing what we're doing, then somehow majority rules. And God says, no, I rule. Majority of one. Now, with that in mind, Jesus goes on to teach this parable. And because we live in a world of constant tension and friction of doing what is right before God versus having choices to do what is wrong before God, we're told in verse 1, the parable is one of contrast, and that will be the basis of our outline. And, and basically, it's very simple. It doesn't take a genius to discern the purpose of the parable when we're told very clearly, Jesus told them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. What's the purpose of the parable coming up? To teach us that we need to pray constantly and not lose heart. There's the contrast between praying and fainting. 
He says we ought to pray, King James Amplified, at all times, New American Standard, should always pray, the NIV. What's the choice that we have? The King James says, well, we either pray or we faint. The Amplified says we either pray or we turn coward. We lose heart, faint, give up. We either pray or we lose heart. We either pray or we give up. So Jesus warns that God's people will do one of two things in light of this tension of the opposing kingdoms. We will either pray or we will faint. Now, I can only recall two times in my life where I've ever physically fainted. One, I think you'll appreciate, I was a senior in high school, I had impacted wisdom teeth and they were infected and so I had to get a double dose of penicillin in, in my hip. And, uh, and uh, so I was at doctor's office and said, well, before we can pull those out, we've got to give you a double dose of penicillin and so we'll go ahead and you can go drop kind of your hip. So the gal stuck me in the hip, gave me the shot and she goes, you better sit here for a minute because it's a pretty strong dose. I said, hey, I'm fine. Zipped up. Walked out, went to get to the doorknob, and I remember seeing the doorknob. <clears throat> I vividly remember to this day, you know, seeing this doorknob 30 years later, and I gave it one of these and went, and, and I woke up, and everybody was like standing there going, are you okay, are you okay, are you okay? And I'm going, oh yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I'm thinking, you know, this macho guy, football player, you know, great shape, I'm fine, and I'm just laying there just out. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, that was pretty interesting. And then a couple, maybe about a month ago, I had an incident where they do this treatment that they do and they lower my blood sugar to a real low level and then they do the injections of all the different drugs. And, um, and, and that's, that's pretty much what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I got down to that point where you start to get the shakes and you get the sweaty thing and you start to go, oh, I'm not doing, something's wrong, something's wrong here, you, you know. But this isn't good, something's not happening here. And then this particular event took place at my house. And, uh, and two hours later, I woke up and it was a pretty interesting scene. My family was there and, and Ruth was there. And, and she had this thing where she tests blood sugar. And I had like 47 holes in all of my fingers. <laughs> and uh, no more blood was coming out of those. And, uh, and then in the meantime, they were like pouring like juices down me. And I woke up and I had this like, I looked like I was like three months pregnant. I had this big, big, big old thing here where they're trying to get my blood sugar level back up. And, and don't ever give me grapes again. Anybody ever share grapes with me, grape juice or any kind of juices? Because uh, I just can't get over it quite yet. But, uh, but it was like, man, this is an interesting experience. And I thought, wow, you know, it, it, to be that helpless and, and to be that, you know, feeling like you have no hope and, and you know that it's going on. And I thought, wow, what a great spiritual illustration of how oftentimes in this life, God's people, we feel like, you know, just like the, the wind has been taken out of our sail. Maybe you're going through a similar type of physical ailment, you know, like I am, and every time you go do a test, you know, you, you wait for the results, and every time the phone rings, and, you know, and it's like, and ours tells us who's calling, and, and, and it's kind of like, oh, no, you know, I love you, brother, but, oh, it's my doctor. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, just fax me this stuff now. I'll read it myself, <laughs> you know. But it's kind of like you just get that sinking feeling like, okay, wait a minute. You know, and, and, and if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're going through marital difficulties or a problem with your children. And you just feel like, man, you know what? You just financial issues and on and on and on it goes. And, you know, you're dealing with friends and, you know, they don't like you because you've taken a stand for the Lord and you're struggling with making decisions one way or the other. You know, but I want to fit in. But yet at the same time, I'm struggling with doing what's right before God. And I feel so lonely. And, you know, you go through all of that. And we all go through it. And at the end of the day, you really 
realize what, what, the, what the instruction here is. The counsel is very simple. You know what? We have two choices in this life. We can either faint and lose hope. We can grow weary and we can grow tired of doing what is right. Or we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. You know, we can dig in and hunker down and say, you know what? That's not negotiable. I don't want to be conformed to this world. I want to be transformed. I want to do what's right before you. You know, I'm going to take a stand for you, Lord. And you know what? And when I feel weak and when I feel tired, when I feel weary and I feel like giving up, you know what? I know now what I need to do. I need to pray. I need to pray. Because if I don't pray, I will grow weak. If I don't pray, I will faint. In the physical world, you can pray all you want. You still may faint low blood sugar. But in the spiritual world, you pray and God says, I guarantee you, you'll never faint. I guarantee you'll never grow weary. I guarantee you, you'll never grow tired. I guarantee you, you won't turn coward. I guarantee you, you won't quit. You pray and I'll give you my strength to hold you up. And that's what I've been doing. It's like, God, you know what? I need your strength. In the midst of this trial, this time of my life, I need your strength because I can't do it in my own strength. You know, people say, man, it's amazing. It's, it's unbelievable. You're here all the time and everything you're going through. And let me tell you something so that nobody misunderstands this. That is because of God's strength, not because of my efforts. It's not because of my will or my determination or my dedication. And I'm sure part of that is, but God, you know what? It's your strength that can uphold me at this time in my life and nobody else's. It's your strength that gets us through when we have physical problems. It's your strength that gets us through when we have marital problems. It's your strength, your grace, your mercy, your love, your kindness, your power, your dynamite of the Spirit of God living within me that gets me through when we're struggling with a child who has turned his back on God or her back on God. It's your strength that gets us through these times of, of, of financial difficulty. It's your strength, not mine. It's yours. And the only way that we have that strength is that we have access to it by prayer. Prayer. I thought about it this week and I thought, you know, prayer is God's smelling salt. Isn't that great? That's God's smelling salt. What does it mean to pray at all times? Well, certainly it doesn't mean to have the words necessarily. Because Matthew, Jesus warns, if you want to turn back to Matthew chapter 6, he warns about people who thought that God had to answer their prayers because they said a lot of words. <clears throat> in fact, in verse 5 of chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew Jesus says, and when you pray, God expects us to pray. Why? Because he knows we need God's strength to get through this life. He says, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say, they have their reward in full. No, but when you pray, you go into that inner room, and when you've shut your door, you pray to your Father who is in heaven in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as Gentiles or unbelievers do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
And then he goes on and, and we see the Lord's Prayer. But, but the bottom line of all of it says, you know what? You don't have to pray a lot of words to God, meaningless repetition, as if somehow the more words we throw up to God, the more that he's going to have a tendency to hear. He said, when you pray, it's an intimate fellowship, relationship with God between you and him. And it's like going into the office when nobody was around to talk to your dad or to talk to somebody. You know, like a child to come to a parent and say, when nobody else is around, mom, dad, can I talk to you about something? I've got something on my heart. I've got something on my mind. I need your counsel. I need your advice. I need your encouragement. I need you to infuse your strength in me at this moment of weakness. It's not about vain repetition. It's not about being out in public so people see and hear us wax eloquently. It's about that intimate relationship with God when nobody else is looking between you and Him that says, you know what, Lord, I need your strength right now. This isn't about anybody else but me and you. See, to pray at all times is to have an attitude of fellowship with God, an attitude that, you know what, God is there, that God cares, that God wants to hear from us. I need you. And God responds to that. You're feeling a little faint. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you know what? Pray, God, give me your strength. Give me your grace. Give me your help so that I can see your hand in this situation and that I can trust in you and in your plans. As we sung, you know what? You got a good purpose. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. To further illustrate the truth, Jesus tells a story, if you go back to Luke again, that would be very familiar to his audience from the parable I want to share with you, this contrast between the widow and what I want to contrast is God's people. There's a contrast that is seen here between this widow and God's people. Notice in verse 2 through 5, Jesus said there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And so there's a contrast that takes place between what I want to contrast is this widow and God's people. You know, Jesus didn't say that God's people are like this poor widow. In fact, he said just the opposite. He's saying because we are not like her, we should be encouraged in our praying. Jesus, as is so often the case, would argue from the lesser to the greater. And his point that he's making is this. If this judge, we'll talk about him in a minute, if this ungodly, unrighteous dog of a person gives this woman what she deserves, how much more so will God do for his people? And so that's the basis of the contrast that we see taking place here. And so if we're going to examine this, let's take a look. We're told all we need to know about the judge. Notice this guy. He doesn't fear God, and as a result, he doesn't fear man. And that pretty much is how it falls into place. If you have no fear for God, you will have no fear for man. If you don't believe you're accountable to God, then you don't believe you'll ever be accountable for your actions. And you can get away with whatever you think you can get away with because ultimately you're the judge. You're the one who calls the final shots. You're the judge and jury of your own life. And this qualification was interesting because, you know, if he was a Jew, he turned his back on everything that God told him he should be. And in fact, King Jehoshaphat took steps to restore order by appointing judges with these orders from 2 Chronicles 19.6. He said this, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, 
who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, partiality, or bribery. The point of the Old Testament was simple. A fear of God is essential for a good judge. The fear of God is essential for good judgment. If you and I are to exercise good judgment, we have got to have a healthy fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we recognize and understand that I'm going to make a decision that ultimately, God, this has got to be pleasing to you. And if it's pleasing to you, it may not be pleasing to the people who are going to have to deal with the decision. But it doesn't matter because I need to be right before you at all times. And so any of us in a leadership position of whatever capacity, we've got to understand, God, is the decision I'm about to make right before you? And if it is, it doesn't matter how people take it. They'll have to deal with that on their own. But think about this. If the decision I'm going to make is wrong before you, now I've got you against me. And the result's not going to please somebody else either because somebody's always pleased, somebody isn't. So now I've got two against me. And I'd rather just have, you know, one and God, you on my side. And so, but this guy didn't get that. He didn't understand it. And he's saying, you know what? As a result, he didn't care about God and he didn't care about men. The guy was just a dirty, corrupt judge. Now, on, by contrast, here's this poor widow. And widows were the most helpless, defenseless people in that culture because as soon as a husband died, then people would come in and try to steal their land, take their property, whatever it was. And they didn't have any recourse because, number one, they didn't have a man in their culture to represent them and women weren't looked at as being equal to men. And so they didn't have the man to represent them. They didn't have, you know, they're a woman and, and certainly no one would listen to anything that they'd have to say. And so we've got this woman who is so in a desperate situation and notice what happens. She just wears him out. Says that she just follows him around. Everywhere that this guy went, she would say, Hey, listen, you know what? I need help. I need your help. I need you to do what's right. And she'd follow him everywhere. You've got to understand, it's not a courtroom like we have in our culture. It was a tent that would go from place to place, and they would set up the tent, and they would bring people that have complaints to the judge. The judge would then issue edicts or, or, or you know, his, his decisions. Well, this guy, everywhere that he went, the, the, the implication here is that this lady followed him everywhere. Followed him to his house, yelled outside in the window, Hey, judge, i got to have your help. Hey, judge, you home? Got to have your help. He'd go down to eat somewhere, and he'd be sitting in the local cafe there on the street corner. Hey, judge, i got to have your help. He followed it. She was following him everywhere. And the Bible says that she wore this guy out, and the word that is used, he finally said, You know what? She is wearing me out. I'll go ahead and do whatever i got to do to shut her up. She was pretty persistent. And the word it's actually used is to wear him out is, is a word that we get black eye. It was basically she just kept assaulting him. It was like she was pounding on him to where he'd get a black eye. Black eye meant could have been a, you know ruined his reputation because everywhere that he went she would follow yelling out you know that she needed justice and aren't you a judge? And it was like oh man, so give her justice and send her on her way, and that's what happened. And the point is, if she received justice from this guy, how much more so will God's people from God? And with that in mind, I want to just share with you some things that I think will be very helpful when we consider praying and the contrast between the widow and God's people. 
Number one, the Bible teaches that you and I, as God's people, have access to the throne room of God. I want you to stop and think about what a privilege that is to have access to God's throne. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 17. You and I, who have come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, have been adopted into the family of God, now have access to the very throne room of God's presence. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. Ephesians 2, 17, verse 18. For through him, speaking of Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostle and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Notice it ties together. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't turn coward. Don't turn and run and hide from our responsibilities in this life to be light and salt. He goes, don't faint at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory for this reason. Because you may faint. Because you may turn coward. Because you may be afraid. Because you may grow weary. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father. I get down on my knees and I pray for whom every family in heaven and earth derives His name that He would grant you notice according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that is, and what is, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Notice the context he's saying, because you may grow weary and you may grow tired because you hear of my persecution, I bow down on my knees before God and I pray that God will give you his strength in the midst of your trials. I pray that not only you will have His strength so that you don't faint, so you don't grow weary, so you don't lose heart, so you don't turn coward, so you don't quit. I pray that you would have His strength and even more than His strength, I pray that you will have an understanding that comes from God as to how much God loves you. No matter what you're going through, Chuck, in the midst of your cancer, I pray that you understand how much God loves you. And that He gave His only begotten Son that He would die in your place so that you would never be held accountable for sin so that you can enjoy His presence and praise Him and be in fellowship with God for all of eternity. This world is passing away. Our physical bodies are here only temporarily. Every one of us are appointed to die once. Then comes judgment. And I just pray in the midst of all of that, in that in-between time, in the present moment, that you understand, number one, that God gives you strength to endure in the midst of your trial and that you would understand and comprehend how much God loves you. Do you realize how much He loves you? Do you realize what He's done for you? Do you realize as we've gone through in context, Luke's gospel, that He has protected you and I who have trusted in Him from the very flames of hell itself? 
Do you realize the options that are available in the presence of God and enjoy, enjoy with Him forever or being separated from Him and for all of eternity in constant torment, day and night in agony, away from His presence, remembering the opportunity that we had to trust in Christ and refusing to do so? Do you remember, do you understand that there is a choice that needs to be made by all human beings as to whether you will repent and turn to God, or whether you will remain in rebellion and lost in your sins and held accountable accordingly. The Bible says that Paul got on his knees and prayed for God's people that they would gain the strength that God has to give us in the midst of our trials and that they would have a comprehension or clear understanding of how much God loves us. See, as, as we go through trials, the devil jumps on our shoulder and whispers in our ear, you know what, you trust God, are you kidding me? He doesn't care for you. He doesn't love you. He hasn't done anything for you. And the doubts are put there. And we've got to go back to Scripture and take those cap thoughts captive to the obedience in Christ and say, you know what, that is not what the Word of God says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever, and you know what, Satan, I have. Whosoever would trust in Him would have eternal life and shall not perish. When I have those moments of doubt, when I have those dark times in my life, I go back to the Word of God. I pray for God's strength. I pray for a clear understanding and comprehension of how much God truly loves me. And I can go on with God's strength every day knowing that, you know what? I can trust you, God. I know what you've done for me. I know what Jesus has done for me. I know that the promise that you, that you make will be fulfilled as you've promised. Every promise that has come true in the past will come true in the future. And you know what? I know you go and prepare a place for me. And this is the one that's getting me through a lot lately, and that is this. You know, I was thinking recently that God created this universe in six days, spoke it all into existence. And I look around, and I go, man, you know what? He did a pretty good job. And then I realize in John 14, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you and I, God's people. And I'm thinking, it's been 2,000 years. He's been working on this place for 2,000 years. How much better is that going to be? Can't even comprehend it. But all I know is this, six days, 2,000 years. You know what? Even so, Lord, you know what? Come whenever you want. In the meantime, I know you're working on a place for us. And man, it's going to be a place that will just blow all of our minds to where we will look back one day and say, I can't believe that I hung on to this life. I can't believe I try to hang on to those friends. I can't believe I try to hang on to that job. I can't believe I try to hang on to those material things rather than to do what was right before God. I can't believe that I would sacrifice all of this that you had to offer for this garbage over here. God, wake us up, huh? Well, I think we all just need a good old wake-up call sometimes. It's like, what in the world are we hanging on to when we know what God has ahead of us? It's good stuff. We have access. Not only do we have access, that we can approach confidently the throne of grace, not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done in our behalf. We can approach confidently the throne of grace that you and I will receive that and find mercy in our time of need. Access is something not to be taken lightly. Every time I go to the stadium, I got that pass that gives me access to the clubhouse or the locker room or wherever it is. I realize what a privilege it is to have access where other people don't. And if I realize that, to just go to a stadium and a locker room and a clubhouse to watch guys walking around half-dressed half the time, how much more excited should I be about having the access to the throne of God? Amen? Amen. Not only do we have access, but you know what? We have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, 1 tells us that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That you and I have an advocate before the throne room of God who is there as our defense attorney, our defense counselor, you know, helping us as we come to God in our prayer. To have an advocate. 
It's a wonderful thing to have a person who steps up for you and says, you know what, it's okay, he's with me. To be able to walk through a locker room and have a guard who never met me and maybe he's a new guy and, you know, and, and doesn't know who I am from anybody else and to have somebody with me that says, that's okay, he's with me. And Jesus says to, about you and I who have trusted in him, Father, that's okay, he's trusted in me. An advocate before the Father. And not only that, we're told in Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27, we have the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, you know, when we look at this, you go, are there times in your life where you just frankly just don't know how to pray? I'm there pretty regularly. I'm like, I, it, some, sometimes, here, here's, it, like, this is sometimes the context of my prayer. God, uh, I don't know. I say, I... I don't know. I, it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, nah, I don't know. And, and, and this gets me through knowing that in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He searches the hearts. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that's why we know all things work to good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. It's like, you know what? It's okay. God knows our hearts. He knows, God, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray about this physical thing. I don't know how to pray about my children sometimes. I don't know how to pray about financial things. I don't know how to pray about relationship issues. I don't know how to pray about decisions at times. I mean, it's like, Lord, I, I don't, you know, I just don't know. Because I know that I think I know what I think we should do, but I'm also knowing that I know that I thought that I thought I should do things in the past that turned out the things I shouldn't have done, and then I had to wait on God to decide what it was I should have done. And so therefore, I get to the point of saying, you know what, God, I don't really know. You tell me, and I'll trust you, and I'll follow you. I got an opinion, like we all do. I got an inclination but the longer I live, the more I realize that, you know what, my opinions, my inclinations really aren't that important anymore. It really comes down to, God, you tell me because I want to be following you. Because when we do what you tell us to do, we're all going to be okay. If we do what I think we should do based on past performance, maybe not. You know, and it's hard because, you know, we get experience, we've got wisdom, we've got all these things, and God brings us to a point in time and he takes all these things that he has taught us along the way. And I'm not saying you throw all that out. You have to temper it with this. Nevertheless, your will be done. So. Good thing you got that advocate <laughs> and his assistance. And the last thing is that we also have abundance. We have an abundance. We have an abundance of grace. We have an abundance of riches. We have an abundance of mercy. We have an abundance of God's strength that is available to you and I who will just turn to him and ask. Isn't that a great comfort? The abundance of his riches. When God's people fail to pray, our condition spiritually will be just like that of the poor widow. And that should encourage us to pray. She had no advocate. She had no access. She had no assistance. She had no abundance. How much more so do we have as God's children? 
And why would we not pray without ceasing? And lastly, let's examine the judge contrasted with the father. Going back to Luke chapter 17, the judge contrasted with the father. Luke 18, the judge contrasted with the father. Notice this. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God, I love that, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? Shall not God respond according to his will and according to his purposes? You know, the parable isn't teaching, and so many times I've heard this and I've read it, and I go, wow, I don't know where this comes from. But so many times it's taught that, you know what, we've got to keep bothering God. We've got to keep pestering God. We've got to be persistent in our prayer. We've got to keep on bugging Him. We've got to keep on knocking on the door. We've got to keep on following Him around from tent to tent as He, as he travels to do justice. We've got to keep on, we've got to stay all over God. And we mistakenly think that somehow or another we have to continue to do that And this passage teaches very clearly that a distressed bugging of God is in fact an inadequate prayer. A distressed bugging of God is an inadequate prayer. Think about it. It'd be like your child coming to you saying, Mom, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. They share with you what it is, what their needs are, and whatever. And you just choose to not do anything at that moment in time. You choose to maybe think about it, to pray about it, to seek other counsel on it. You just choose not to make a decision at that moment in time. Or you choose to make them wait so that you will flush out whether it's really this urgent need that they think that they have. And so, so many times Christians get to the point of we think we've got to keep bothering God as if God doesn't hear our prayers. And you know what? And that's idolatry. Because back in, in, in the Old Testament, you know, those who would pray to Baal, who wasn't a god at all and didn't exist you know, would be told, hey, you need to keep praying. You need to keep praying. You need to call on, on Baal in 1 Kings 18, 26. We read, they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I kind of like this. You know, I can relate to this a little bit in this particular point because it said that he, he, he yelled to him and said, shout louder. <laughs> he said, surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they did. They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Don't you love that? Elijah's going, oh no, you need to yell a little louder. As if this God who doesn't exist, if you yell louder, will hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's out on a drive. Maybe he's traveling around. Maybe you need to, you know, send a... And his point was very simple. You can yell as loud as you want. There's nobody there to hear you because Baal doesn't exist. Now, contrast that to us. St. Chuck, you don't have to yell and shout and wonder where God is. Why? Because he's not like that judge. He hears you. You have an advocate. You have access. Even when you don't know how to pray, you've got the assistance of the Spirit of God. You've got the abundance of all of His riches and resources at your disposal. And you know what? There are times in life where God simply just doesn't answer our prayers like we want, the way we want, when we want them answered. But it doesn't mean He doesn't hear, and it doesn't mean He's not doing a work in our life. It means that we are a work in progress 
to be conformed to the image of His Son so that when the unbelieving world sees us, they see more of Jesus and less of us. And we wait patiently on the Lord. Why do we often feel like God isn't answered? Because of God's patience. Because God has a different plan. He has a different purpose. And oftentimes he does his best work while you and I are in the waiting room. I've told people for years, and I've dealt with people that, you know, their careers are over in one season. They don't know where they're going the next. Their contract's up. You know, they're always on the go. They're always moving. They're always in that state of flex. They're always waiting upon the Lord. And after a while, you can say, listen, man, this is like the sixth time we've had this conversation. You've been on eight teams in the last six years. I said, are you starting to get to the point where, you know what, God has you in the lobby, in his waiting room, and you can pace back and forth, you know, biting your fingernails, chain smoking, whatever you just want to do, or you can just sit down, grab a good book, which I would think would be the book, and just listen to what God has to say while he has you wait. Because his timing, his ways, his thoughts aren't always ours. And we learn to accept them. How? By waiting patiently upon the Lord. He'll renew our strength, which isn't ours, but His infused in us. Patience. We don't need to bombard God's throne with repetitious requests, thinking God is like the unjust judge and will not hear until we blacken His eye. I came across something that would be helpful. See Samuel Storms in his book. It's called Reaching God's Ear. He uses these following things to evaluate his prayer life, and I would share some of these with us. He says, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of a prayer is dependent upon the quantity of words? Do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and needs more information? Or if not ignorant, at least he is unconcerned and therefore needs to be aroused in some way. Do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail upon Him, somehow transforming a hard-hearted God into a compassionate and loving one? He says, do we repeat our petition because we think that God will be swayed in His decision by by our putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through this thin veil of hypocrisy? And I had to, we think that he will hear our petitions because we think that if collectively we all gang up on him, you know, there's strength in numbers. And the reality of it is, is that that's idolatry. That's praying to a God who's not our God at all. God hears our prayers. But there are times where we need to pray fervently. There are times where we need to pray persistently. Perhaps the greatest example of that that I've used in my own life is, I like, oh, how many times, God, am I going to bother you about this cancer thing? And then you know, I realized that Paul had an affliction in his side, his thorn in his flesh, and he entreated upon the Lord three times. Not that three times is the magic number, but I can get a clue from that. And I said, you know what? God knows. And Paul said, I entreated upon him three times with passionate, fervent zeal. I came to the Lord and said, As if your will, remove this physical affliction from me. God didn't do it. So he went back to him again, persistent. Lord, if it's your will, remove this affliction from me. God didn't do it. Goes back to him again. Lord... Still got this affliction. Decided to let you know in case you maybe slipped your mind. You got a lot of other things going on. Still got it. Will you remove this from me? And you know what he said to him? He said, no, I'm not going to remove it from you because through your weakness, my strength will be perfected. Instead of removing the obstacle, you know what he did in his life? He gave him grace to overcome it. 
How many times do you and I pray that God would remove the obstacles instead of infuse me with greater grace so that I can use this obstacle as a platform for your kingdom? So now I struggle with God. You know what? If it's not your will to remove the cancer, give me greater strength and greater, you know, greater grace so that I can use this affliction in my life to lead people to faith in Christ. Do I want it? No. I've got to believe Paul didn't want his affliction either. I've got to believe you don't want your affliction either. I've got to believe that you don't want what's going on in your life any more than I want what's going on in my life. And all I'm saying to you is the same thing that God's convicting me, and that is this. You know what? Stop praying that I would remove those things from you, but pray that I will give you strength and grace to be able to use those for my kingdom's sake. Amen? We pray knowing that God's promises will be fulfilled. And I like that. God's will will be done. We pray knowing that the greatest problem in our prayer life isn't God, it's us. And that's why in closing, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith is not 2020 looking back and saying, oh God, now I see how you worked. How many times do we do that? Oh, looking back, oh God, I see how you worked. What God is teaching me is the truth of his word that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is living today in the midst of my cancer, in the midst of your affliction, is is living in in the midst of whatever it is today, trusting God for what he will do in the future. It is living today, being used by God in the circumstances that he has us in to be a platform and a testimony to God's strength, to God's love, to God's character, to God's uh, you know, comfort, to God's concern, to God's compassion. In the midst of those circumstances, it's the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not yet seen because we can go in the Word of God and see that God's character is consistent throughout human history. And every person that doubted God in that moment of time looked back after they got to where God was leading them and said, Oh God, now I see how you worked. But those in Hebrews 11 were those who stepped up in faith and took that step and walked by faith, not by sight, saying, God, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea, but I know you. I trust you, and I'm going to step out in faith today and look forward to what you will do tomorrow. But I know that I am in good hands because I'm in yours, God. When Jesus returns, will he find faith? I pray that we will become people of faith who live for the moment, trusting in God, knowing that our future is secure in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the clarity of your word. Thank you for being a loving God who gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. How, God, could we ever doubt your love, your concern, your care, your compassion for us? God, help us to see your great love. I pray as Paul did, that we would be people who would be strengthened and receive your grace in our time of weakness so that we can use those obstacles as a testimony of your great love for us. God, I pray that we will have a comprehension or an understanding 
of how great a love that you have for us. That even while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die in our place. I pray that we will be people of prayer and that we will not grow weary, that we will not lose heart, that we will not turn coward, that we will not faint, but that you will infuse in us your strength and your might to live in a world that's in rebellion against you. And we look forward to how you will use that strength through us to reach others for your kingdom's sake. You are our king. You are our God. Amen.